turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Ezekiel chapter 1. So we started a couple weeks ago with a, um, <clears throat> like an introduction to Ezekiel talking about the theme of exile. And then last week we watched um, the Bible Project video um, at my place before... At my place before Super Bowl Sunday, uh, before the Super Bowl, and we went through kind of an outline of Ezekiel. So hopefully you have, uh, if you were there, you know you have a um, uh, somewhat of a view of what the book of Ezekiel looks like, uh, and the kind of the big picture outline. And then today we are going to uh, actually dive into the text of Ezekiel. We're going to get started. So let me just open us up in prayer. So Lord, um, I pray that you would. Bless our time in this book. I thank you that you have um, not left us in the dark, but you have revealed yourself to us. Um, even in these books that don't get read in church enough, um, even in the books that, like this that we don't read in our quiet times and our devotionals enough. Um, I thank you for the message of this book. I thank you for Ezekiel who wrote this book. I thank you for the way that you speak to your people through your prophets. And um, Lord, I just pray for... Uh, the anointing of your Holy Spirit today, so that this time would not be about my words, but would be about yours. And I just pray that we would not be here for information, but for heart change and for life change. So we pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> I saw this clip on YouTube a while ago of a comedian. Um, and what the comedian was talking, he was like a stand-up, he had a whole bit about this, but um, he was talking about how much, and this is so true, how much he hates people who actually answer the question, how are you doing? You know what I'm talking about? Like, if you ever, you know, in our culture, right? You say, how are you doing? What are the only two responses? Is good, if you're doing good. And if you're doing terrible, I forget how he put it, but it's like, if you're doing terrible, you say, I'm fine. Right? And those are the only, and he told a whole story about a guy, he walked into the bank, and that guy that stands at the front of the bank was like, well, my sister is sick. And he was like, what? I'm just trying to make a deposit, right? <clears throat> you know, when we ask somebody that question, we don't expect a real answer. It's kind of a nicety. We don't want, we get really annoyed when somebody goes, I want to actually let you into my life a little bit. It's frustrating and it's annoying. Um, in our world of like social media and Instagrams, um, the normal way to operate, I mean, it's not new to Instagram, but the normal way to operate is to just always pretend like you're doing way better than you are, right? It's like the whole Instagram uh, aesthetic is to put on this show like, you know, I watch a lot of videos about uh, people who live in their vans and that kind of stuff, you know, build vans and people who live on boats. And it's like this whole thing where they make it look real uh, appealing and great. But I mean, the truth is you're also you're living in a van, you know, they never talk about the parts that stink. Um, there was a movie a while ago called Ingrid Goes West. Did anybody see that movie with Elizabeth Olsen and Aubrey Plaza? And the plot of the movie was Elizabeth Olsen, I'm sorry, Aubrey Plaza's character is kind of like Instagram stalking one of her favorite Instagram influencers. And she gets to know her in real life. She pretends to bump into her or something and they become friends and she doesn't know that she's totally been stalking her on Instagram for years. But anyway, it's this, the, the, the influencer is Elizabeth Olsen and it's this couple, uh, her and her boyfriend or husband or whatever, I don't remember. I barely even remember this movie. But I remember one scene where it was like they were fighting or something. And I don't even remember exactly how this went, but they were fighting or something. And um, she was like, all right, I need you to stop so we can film this thing. 
and then, hey, I'm a, you know, and then right back to the fighting, you know, just like the fake world. Um, now you're probably thinking, okay, great, John's now going to go on one of his world-famous rants against social media because he doesn't have Instagram or TikTok or whatever, um, uh, and he doesn't really understand me, but that's not what we're doing here. Um, <clears throat> you know, that's not where I'm headed. Church people are just as guilty as Instagram influencers, aren't we, of not letting people into our lives for real? Our faith is hard, isn't it? Maybe more so because, you know, even more so because we have this divine mandate. We have this mandate from God Almighty to be a part of a community like this and to actually let people into our lives. And I don't think we do a very good job in the church of... I think when things go really well, we're great at letting people into our lives. We celebrate together. We do that really well. But I don't think we're very good at letting people into our lives when things are not going very well. We don't like people digging into our lives and finding something bad. (laughs) Have you ever heard a pastor get up in church and say, do you feel the joy of the Lord today? And then somebody from the crowd goes, not really. I've never seen that happen in a church, right? What happens? The pastor gets up. Do you feel the joy of the Lord today? Amen. Yeah, you know. But somebody out there is probably thinking, I had a really hard time following Jesus this week. I had a really hard time growing in my faith this week. I had a really hard time feeling the presence of God. Why? Because the Christian life is not all you know, roses and Chick-fil-A sandwiches, right? It's not all just wonderful things. Our brokenness and our fallenness, right? The brokenness and the fallenness like within the human heart, uh, because of that, faith is hard. It's like this, you know, we're trying to run a marathon with a boulder strapped to our backs, right? It's weighing us down. Our sin and our, our brokenness weighs us down. And it's a struggle a lot of times during the week. You go to work, you come home, uh, you interact with your spouse or whoever, you know, you do you, your parents, whatever, you know, and you, you sh- struggle to really believe and apply the gospel to your lives. And then you say, man, I'm going to try better. And then you go, I'm going to read the Bible. And you sit down and read the Bible. And sometimes the Bible can be infuriating if we're honest, right? You read the Bible and you see some great truth or you see some great person living out a great truth. And then you sit there and wallow in it and go, why don't I feel this way? Right? Why does it seem so easy for Elijah or whoever, and it's so hard for me? Why don't I feel the presence of God like Moses did on Sinai? Or why did, or the way Peter did, or Mary, or one of the 500 Marys, or Martha, or, you know, why don't I feel the empowerment of the Holy Spirit? But the truth is, the more you dig into Scripture... There are some very honest stories about the failures of some of these heroes and their sort of struggles. Like one time, there was a guy, I just mentioned Elijah, but the truth is, the story of Elijah goes like this. Everybody tried to kill him. And he was a prophet, you know, in the northern kingdom of Israel. And one day, uh, he gets so depressed, he gets so bummed out, he runs into the wilderness and he hides and he tells God, I'm the only believer left And I don't even want to be alive anymore. I'm just going to kill myself. And then God, you know, sends him some food and tells him to take it. Right? What's that T-shirt that's like, you know, if you're ever feeling really down, 
sometimes the answer is to just take a nap and have a snack, and it's like the verse from <laughs> from Second Kings or First Kings or wherever that is, right? Or think of Job, right? Think of the whole book of Job is about a guy just in utter distress about what's happening in his life, and he looks at God and he goes, "I don't understand this at all." And the whole the point of the book of Job is not uh, you really need to understand. Um, you really need to understand why this stuff is happening. But the point of Job is this is what it looks like to have this sort of godly conversation with the Lord, to struggle through something like this. Job is lifted up as an example. Or think of David in the Psalms. Imagine being David for a minute. You're a kid, you're out in the field. Samuel, the prophet, comes up, who's like the most important guy in the entire kingdom. And he comes up to you and he says, you know what, kid? Someday you're going to be the king of Israel. You're like, what, me? I'm not even the most important guy in my family. And he goes, no, God said that you're going to be the king. Pours oil all over his face and his head, you know, it goes down. And eventually he takes a shower and that runs off. And then he grows up. And he's not the king yet. And years and years go by. And then the king finds out David had been anointed and that he's going to be the king someday. So what does King Saul do? He chases David around the desert from cave to cave, hunting him down. David went through it. He had some tough times in the desert running from cave to cave. And in a lot of those times is when he wrote some of the Psalms. And it's why the Psalms are so popular, because it really does portray the struggle of the Christian faith, right? Look at this. Um, <clears throat> uh, Psalm, what is this? Uh, 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Right? So this is the psalmist going, where are you? How long are you going to keep me in the dark? Or keep going, right? This one is Psalm 22. You know this one, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning, O oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Right? This is the psalmist experiencing exactly that struggle of the faith. Ezekiel is one of these prophets that I think the book of Ezekiel opens up, and I think Ezekiel is in one of these moments. Um, we've talked about already sort of the, let me lay out again the historical context of this book. Ezekiel was part of the second wave of exiles that got taken from Jerusalem to Babylon. So Jerusalem is still a city. It's still there, but it's not the glorious city that it used to be. It's already fallen twice, kind of. But it's, it, in a few years, it's going to fall completely and be completely destroyed, and the temple is going to be destroyed. So here he is. Um, he's in this second wave of exiles. And so we're going um, to read now. I'm going to start here in verse 1. We're going to go through the entire book of Ezekiel together. Uh, Ezekiel is the third longest book in the Bible. You thought Luke took forever. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to go a lot faster than Luke. Only Psalms and Jeremiah are longer. Wait, I, I'm going to give you the stats before we start reading, okay? 39,401 verses, uh, sorry, words, 1,273 verses, 48 chapters. So we got a little bit of work to do, all right? Everybody stretch. This is how I do my exercise. Okay, here we go. Verse 1. Uh, in the 30th year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, while I was among the exiles at the Kibar Canal. 
So one of the interesting things, I'm not going to get into this big debate but uh, about how they know the dates, but they know the exact, you can basically go back and figure out the exact dates, some of the math with some of the lost years and that kind of stuff gets complicated. But I'm going to give you the dates for this stuff. They know the exact date that this happened. It was July 31st, 593 BC. Um, so it's the only, one of the only dates like this we know in the Bible. It's actually my dad's birthday, but a couple of years before my dad was born. He's old, but he ain't not that old. All right, so here's the situation. Um, it says in the 30th year. This is a reference to Ezekiel's age. This July 31st, so the only guy in the Bible we know his birthday. This is his birthday. It's the only guy we know his birthday, and it also happens to be my dad's birthday. And that doesn't seem like a big deal to us, Ezekiel sitting there by the Kibar Canal on his 30th birthday. Um, but Ezekiel, the reason that this is referenced like this is Ezekiel was supposed to be a priest. And he grew up in Jerusalem, probably, or around Jerusalem, because if he was going to be a priest, uh, during the reign of a king named Josiah. And there was this big revival among the people during the time of King Josiah. Uh, he was this great reformer. And most likely, Ezekiel was trained as a kid. His whole life, he was told, someday you are going to be a priest. So his, his school, he didn't learn history and geography. You know what I mean? He didn't do math. He did priest stuff. He read Leviticus for his whole childhood. This guy was getting ready to be a priest. And for 25 years, he grew up, he planned to get to enter the priesthood on his 30th birthday. That's when you become a priest, is on your 30th birthday. But 25 years into it, he was taken captive and he was marched across the desert in, uh, to this slave camp, this abandoned town, like a suburb of Babylon, called uh, Nippur. And um, this town was like a farming town and had a series of canals. So these are the, they're not slaves exactly, but they're, you know, uh, exiles who were there. They brought them in to work the fields to grow all the food for all the Babylonians, right? So these are like the farmers. And uh, this is where he is. So he's uh, next to one of these canals. It's the Kibar Canal right outside of Babylon. And on his 30th birthday, he went down and he sat down by the river. And you can imagine, he is massively bummed out. This was supposed to be the day where he gets up and he is installed in the temple in Jerusalem as a priest. The problem is he's by the Kibar Canal in Babylon, 1,700 miles away from Jerusalem. There are priests. The temple has not been destroyed yet. It's still over there, but he does not get to be a part of it. And so you can imagine he probably had a few questions for the Lord as he sat by the canal. Why did you make me train my whole life for something that I was never going to get to do, for something that was never going to happen? If he was having an honest conversation with the Lord, that's how it would have gone. In a world where political conflict was also seen as conflict between the gods of each of those nations, He's sitting in Babylon going, Lord, Yahweh, what's going on? Why am I here? Did you lose to Marduk, the god of the Babylonians? Did you lose to Nebuchadnezzar? And more practically, he's also trying to figure this out. Are we still even the people of God in Babylon? Because your presence is in Jerusalem. How are we going to be the people of God if we sit out here in this suburb of Babylon and we work these fields? How can we worship you away from your presence? And these are probably the questions he's going through with the Lord. Have you abandoned us? Moping down by the river on his birthday, and then all of a sudden, the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God 
On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. The word of the Lord came directly to the priest, Ezekiel, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Kibar Canal. The Lord's hand was on him there. All right, so first I want you to see something kind of interesting. Um, in the fifth year, let's see, the word of the Lord came directly to the priest Ezekiel. The Lord's hand was on him there. That's like, what's that called, third person? But look at the beginning of the verse. It's first person. The heavens were open and I saw the visions of God. So Ezekiel probably collected all this stuff and wrote it down, and somebody who worked with Ezekiel was like, let me fill in a little bit of the details here about what happened to Ezekiel before the whole thing was put together um, and collected, some sort of an editorial note. But what happens is Ezekiel, he's sitting there by the river, and the, he, the, he has this vision. He's taken behind the scenes. Um, I love behind-the-scenes videos on YouTube. It's really interesting like, to watch, uh, watch a video that's like behind the scenes of Lord of the Rings uh, movies, right? How, how the movie magic happens. Or I watch a lot of how music is recorded because that's one of my hobbies, right? It sort of lifts the veil, and it makes things less scary. And then you watch Lord of the Rings, and you're like, well, that's not magical anymore. That's just a movie set that I saw in this video. But actually, here is the opposite, the behind-the-scenes look that he's going to get at this heavenly realm doesn't demystify things. It makes things more mysterious, and it's terrifying, and it's more scary than he can imagine. And so, again, the date is given. The 30th year means it's his birthday, but also it's, it says here it was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile. This is actually kind of funny because Ezekiel was exiled at the same time as King Jehoiakim. Right? That's how we know it's, he was exiled as a 25-year-old. It's been five years. And when Jehoiachin, sorry, I said Jehoiachin, Jehoiachin, different guy, uh, was captured, Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, took his uncle, a guy named Zedekiah, and put him on the throne. So technically right now, there's a king in Jerusalem named Zedekiah. Everybody hates his guts, though. Nobody thinks he's the real king. And so Ezekiel, the way he writes this is insulting to King Zedekiah because he doesn't say it's been the fifth year since Zedekiah took the throne. He says, it's been the fifth year since our real king was taken captive. So he's less than impressed with this guy. And while he's there, it's been five years, he's sitting by the river. It says, the word of the Lord came to him. God's hand was on him. So these first three chapters, we're only going to read chapter one today, but the first three chapters are like the Ezekiel's call to ministry. Next week, we're going to read chapters two and three. And the idea with a pro prophetic ministry is God is calling Ezekiel and his mandate goes like this. You don't speak for yourself anymore. You only speak for me. So I'm going to give you something to say, and you need to go tell everybody. And there were a couple of prophets actually working around this time. Um, the other one we know about is um, Jeremiah. You know the story of Jeremiah? Would you call him the, who, was it you, the, the crybaby? <laughs> that was funny, right? The, the weeping prophet, right, Jeremiah? Um, so Jeremiah was a prophet, but he was older than Ezekiel, and he was a prophet back in Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem, there's a prophet, Jeremiah, and he's telling the people basically the exact same message that Ezekiel is telling the people all the way across the desert in Babylon. And both of these guys are going to speak the truth of judgment and the truth of God. And so uh, he's sitting there, and it says, um, this is very important, the last phrase there, the Lord's hand was on him there. This is really interesting. This is the most important part of these first three verses. It happened to him where? In Babylon. His big question, everybody's big question was, where is God while we're in Babylon? 
And the first thing we read in the book of Ezekiel is he was right there with Ezekiel next to the Kibar Canal outside of the city of Babylon. And so what we're going to read next in these bunch of verses is Ezekiel trying to describe um, the vision that he sees. But uh, he doesn't do a very good job. Uh, let me tell you what I mean by this. Okay, so I told you before, you know, I went to seminary and everything. My Greek is okay. Like when we did Luke, I read stuff in Greek. My Hebrew is garbage. I don't really remember Hebrew. I know how to read the guys who do know it, and I can kind of work my way around it, but I'm not very good. But apparently, and Chris told me about this when I told him we were studying Ezekiel. He wrote a paper on this in seminary or college or something. But the Hebrew uh, of these first couple of chapters is all over the place. Have you ever seen like a somebody uh, run... I don't know, like from an emergency car accident or something, and they're trying to tell somebody what happened and they can't get the words out. And what they're saying kind of makes sense, but not a lot. Um, that's what uh, the, the language is like in Ezekiel 1, 2, and 3. And so Chris was telling me all about this, and he told me all about his paper, and I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and then I went and I read the most important book that's been written on Ezekiel by this, that guy I was telling you guys about last week, the Ezekiel guy, right? He wrote, literally wrote the book on Ezekiel. And he had a whole section about this in his book. And I was like, okay, I already know this. Chris told me, right? Uh, but anyway, the point is, um, it's very, uh, it's chaotic what's happening here. And Ezekiel is flustered. He's struggling to get onto paper and to describe something that he doesn't know how to get on paper and he doesn't know how to describe. He's like, there's an episode uh, we watched in church, like when we were doing one of those receive, reject, redeem things of Star Trek years ago, where um, this person from a primitive culture, she's brought up to the Enterprise, and she can't understand everything that she's seeing. Uh, this is kind of like what happens to Ezekiel. But he's not just brought up to something that's more technologically advanced than what he's used to. He's brought into a completely different realm of the universe, right? He gets a glimpse into heaven. He's going from our world into the throne room of God, and he has trouble describing it. All right, so we're going to read, let's read what he, how he describes the vision. So today we're going to read the beginning of the vision, and then next week we're going to read the end of the vision and like his actual charge and his call. So we'll start in, uh, in verse four is the vision. I looked, and there was a whirlwind coming from the north, a huge cloud with fire flashing back and forth and brilliant light all around it. In the center of the fire, there was a gleam like amber. So the first thing he sees, he sees like the sky open up somehow. We don't know exactly what this looked like. And all of a sudden, as the sky opens up, this giant storm starts coming from the north. And um, anybody who spent a lot of time in the Old Testament would immediately hear this language and go, oh, I, I know what that is. We've seen this before. Uh, right after the plagues, the people are leaving Egypt, and they're like, we don't know which way to go. And there's this pillar of fire, the cloud of glory, the storm of God went out in front of the people, and the people just followed this storm around. Um, that's in Exodus. And then the storm stops at Sinai, and the storm gets worse, and we're told this is the presence of God <coughs> in this storm. And then at one point, God tells them to build the tabernacle, which was like the tent version of a temple of what would eventually be the temple. And so they build the tabernacle, and the storm kind of goes down into the tabernacle and in a really cool way. And, like, the presence of God now is in the tabernacle. 
Um, and then, like, the book of Job, when Job is arguing, and he's like, God, you need to show up and tell me what's happening. The way God shows up in uh, the end of Job, it's like Job, I forget what's the chapter, 39 or 40, somewhere right there. Um, God shows up in a storm, and then he yells at Job. Uh, or when Solomon builds the temple, right? The, the place gets full of the storm. The glory of the Lord fills the temple so that all the priests can't do the sacrifice, and they all have to leave the temple. Right? And so this is what Ezekiel sees in this vision. But there's more. It's not just a storm. Uh, look at this. Hey, can you click through this as I read? Some of these are kind of long passages. All right. Verse 5. The likeness of four creatures came from it. So out of the storm comes these four creatures. And this was their appearance. So he starts to describe them. They looked something like a human. Do you see how he doesn't really know how to describe this? Uh, they look kind of like a human. But each of them had four faces and four wings. I would not say that looks anything like a human. He goes, they look like a human if a human had wings and four faces. The legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like hooves of a calf, sparkling with the gleam of polished bronze. Okay, so they've got these like straight legs with hoofs for feet, and the hoofs are bright and shining like a gleaming metal. They had human hands underneath the wings on the four sides. All four of them had uh, faces and wings. The wings were touching. The creatures did not turn as they moved. Each one went straight ahead. Their faces looked something like, so he describes the four faces here, something like the face of a human. So on one, so they have these four-sided faces, the face of a human. The other side was uh, the face of a lion on the right, the face of an ox on the left, and then the back was the face of an eagle. That is what their faces were like. Their wings were spread upward. Each had two wings touching that of another and two wings covering his body. So then they've got two wings going up like this, touching the wings. So they're making like a square. They're each touching wings and they're kind of in a circle, square, whatever. And then the other two wings they have are covering their body. So this is a really weird description, right? They have these four faces. Um, it seems like a really weird selection of the faces, but for anybody in Ezekiel's day, from what I read, they would have kind of understood this. This was some common themes in the Babylonian culture and stuff, and just in the ancient Near East, they used these four a lot. And the idea is they're kind of the pinnacle of creation. The human face is the most important of all of creation, right? The lion is the king of the wild animals. The ox is the king of the um, uh, domesticated animals, and the eagle is like the king of the skies. So basically, it's just a kind of a, these four faces is a way to say, this is like the ultimate creature, whatever this thing is. And they had this weird look with these four wings and these long legs, and um, the wings touching is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. So the Ark of the Covenant has these two weird angels on it, and they, the cherubim, and they have these two wings that go over, and it says that they specifically touch. So we know something's going on here that reminds these Jewish folks and reminds Ezekiel of the Ark of the Covenant where the very presence of God sat. And what it says is that they were moving around, but they weren't like turning to move. They just kind of, you know, and we'll read about how they move in a second. Uh, verse 12, let's keep going. Each creature, uh, each creature went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, they went without turning as they moved. So these creatures are all moving in unison and they're guided by the spirit. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. We don't know exactly what's meant by the phrase, by the spirit. There's three options. One is they're guided, it could mean they're guided by their own spirits, meaning they just like, uh, they, just, they move as they guide themselves. The second option is they're moved by the wind, because in Hebrew, the word wind and the word spirit, it's the same word. 
And so it could mean that the, the wind is just blowing them around and they're moved. The third option and the most plausible option is they're moved by the Holy Spirit. And this makes the most sense. These, we're, we'll find out these creatures are servants of the Most High God. And the idea is the Spirit is just guiding them where to go, but like they don't need Google Maps or anything. They just, the Spirit just tells them where to go and they go. Verse 13, the likeness of the living creatures was like the appearance of blazing coals of fire or torches. Fire was moving back and forth between the living creatures. It was bright with lightning coming out of it. The creatures were darting back and forth like flashes of lightning. So this is where it starts to get really weird and chaotic. So there's these four creatures, and they've, they're kind of in this square shape, and they've got their wings touching, and they're mo- they're, the picture is just a lot of chaos and movement. They're, they're moving back and forth, and as they move, we kind of can picture this probably better than somebody in the ancient world when Ezekiel was trying to describe this. But if you've seen light, you know what I mean? When it moves really fast and you kind of see the tail of it on video or whatever, I think that's kind of what he's seeing. But while this is happening, there's storms and there's clouds and it's bright and he doesn't know exactly what's happening and there's fire. And uh, so he sees these creatures. Next, he gets into verse 15, what they were doing and how they were moving. He starts talking about these wheels. Um, When I looked at the creatures, there was one wheel on the ground beside each of the four-faced creatures. The appearance of the wheels and the craftsmanship was something like a gleam of a barrel, and all four had the same likeness. Their appearance and craftsmanship was like a wheel within a wheel. That's cool. This is the original spinners on a Cadillac Escalade. They still do that. I know it's not 2004 anymore, but I feel like... But Okay, so you can imagine, though, for somebody in the ancient world who's never seen a Cadillac Escalade with spinners, they don't know. This wheel is spinning inside of this other wheel, and he's trying to describe it. Verse 17, when they moved, they went in uh, any of the four directions without turning as they moved. So if you think about a, a chariot, a chariot has to turn its whole thing to move. This is not, it's just like on four gyroscope wheels. This whole thing is like with the four wheels and the the guys, these angel, whatever things, these creatures, it's just moving kind of like this, right? Now, again, to us, we've seen stuff that moves around like this. Roomba or what, you know, I don't know. Like we, we have tech like this. And so this is not that amazing. But to somebody in the ancient world that had only ever seen a chariot and maybe not even seen a chariot, just heard about them, This is like blowing Ezekiel's mind. Um, The four, verse, where was I? Verse 18. The four rims were tall and awe-inspiring, completely covered with eyes all around. When the living creatures moved, the wheels moved beside them. And when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels also rose. Wherever the spirit wanted to go, the creatures went in that direction. uh, Sorry, in the direction the spirit was moving. The wheel rose alongside them for the spirit of the living, uh, sorry, the living creatures was in the wheel. When the creatures moved, the wheels moved. When the creatures stopped, the wheels stopped. And the creatures rose, uh, and when the creatures rose from the earth, the wheels rose alongside them, for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels. So we have these wheels. They're made of this like precious metal. It's probably something that looks like, they don't know exactly what it looks like, but uh, some kind of a gold something. It says these wheels are full of eyes. Now, uh, this is where things get confusing because Ezekiel uses the word for eye like an eyeball. That's what it says in Hebrew. Like it literally says, these wheels are covered with eyeballs. But remember, he's in Babylon. And in Babylon, they spoke a language called Akkadian. And in Akkadian, 
they use the word I and like spirit and wind are the same word in Hebrew in Akkadian, I and gemstone are the same word. And so even though he's speaking Hebrew, he's using something that he had learned, picked up while he was in Babylon. So most likely this is not a wheel covered with eyeballs. It's a wheel, I mean, because that doesn't really make a lot of sense, right? Uh, it's a wheel covered with these gemstones. What he's describing here is like a crazy heavenly chariot. It's made up of these four angelic creatures and the fanciest chariot wheels you've ever seen. But instead of having to turn like a chariot, it just moves. It goes up and down. And it seems like the wheels are there, but they're not exactly connected to the four living creatures. Because he's like, when the guy moves, the wheel moves too. But I don't know how it happened because it must be the spirits in the wheels. And the <laughs> he's just trying to describe it. He can't figure it out. But here's the thing. A chariot isn't just wheels, right? A chariot, there's more to it. you got to have something to stand on. That's what he describes next, the great expanse. Look at verse 22. Over the heads of the living creatures. So now he's like, he's moving his way up. First I saw the living creatures, then I saw the wheels. Now he's moving up. Over their heads uh, of the creatures, the likeness of an expanse was spread out. It gleamed like an awe-inspiring crystal. And under the expanse, their wings extended one towards another, they each also had two wings covering their bodies. When they moved, I heard the sound of the wings like the roar of a huge torrent, like the voice of the Almighty, and when the sound of the tumult, like a noise of an army, uh, sorry, and the sound of a tumult, like the noise of an army. When they stopped, they lowered their wings. So these things would move, and I guess their wings were flapping. Um, well, actually, first here, let me say this. Um, somewhere in there, and he's used this phrase a handful of times. He keeps saying, in the likeness of something. It was like, uh, you know, like a wheel within a wheel. It was like this. Um, one commentator pointed out this. Well, first, let me say this. Uh, he's doing that because he's having trouble describing what it is he sees. But he's also, one commentator pointed this out. As he moves his way, his eyeline moves up the chariot to describe more and more. The further up he goes, the less detailed he gets. Like, it's almost like a, like a blur, the higher up it goes. Or, um, this, you know, you ever been on a stage with really bright lights? You know, it's kind of distracting. Like, I remember the first time I taught at Christchurch with Toby and those guys, and then nobody told me, oh, by the way, you know, we've got a lighthouse up in the balcony facing you. And, you know, you get up there, and so this is what I thought of, right? You can kind of see what's happening in the front row, with the lights in your eyes, and you can't really see more and more and more. The further back you go towards the light, it becomes harder to look at. That seems to be what Ezekiel is struggling with here. He's describing what he sees. So he looks up, and a little less clear than the people is this expanse. So he looks, and he sees this great expanse. Um, it's like a giant platform. He says it's covered in crystal, and it's awe-inspiring. So it's, it's, it's clear, and it's, it's beautiful. Um, the phrase... Uh, awe-inspiring is really interesting. It's almost like he can't even describe what it is that he's seeing. Like he starts to. It's covered in crystal and it had like a, I don't know, guys, it was dope. <laughs> right, that's what he says. It was amazing. Uh, in Revelation 4, 6, when we see the throne room of God, this is called the sea of glass. It's what the throne, it's like the, the, in the floor of the throne room. And again, we have movement. So these four creatures, they're holding up this platform um, and there's still the storm and the lightning and the fire and everything around. And um, 
there's this beautiful metal everywhere and the light is shining off of the metal and glittering and the whole thing moves. And when the thing moves, there's like this crazy sound. And I want you to think about this for a second. This uh, is a time before movie theaters and speakers, right? We hear loud sound all the time. Just yesterday, I was yelling at my brother, what are you, deaf, right? Yeah, Melissa laughed. Yeah, we had this big fight with Ben and then he said something mean to us about, because I won't get into it, because uh, we thought, yeah, <laughs> we thought he was watching TV too loud, right? But we, you know that sound, right? Where something is really loud or a baseball game or something when they play something really, or a concert. Like every time Melissa and I walk out of a concert, that was a really good concert. Yeah, what? <laughs> you know, you know that feeling, right? Nobody in the ancient world knew that feeling. Right? There, what can make sound that loud? You ever been to the symphony? Even the loudest the symphony gets, not that loud, right? because it's not amplified. And so he starts to try to describe it, how loud the sound was. And what he does is he comes up with the three things that are the loudest things in the world that he can think of. A sound of a mighty waterfall or river. That's a pretty loud sound. If you've ever been near a waterfall, that's one of the loudest sounds in nature, right? Okay, so that's what he says. That's the first one. The second thing he says is like the sound of an army. You can imagine a huge crowd of people cheering and screaming. That can also get pretty loud. And then the third thing he says, it's almost like, I don't know, guys, it's like the sound of the voice of God. He's like, I bet God's voice is very loud. <laughs> and so this is probably like the voice of the Almighty, um, which also could be everybody talked about the voice thundering at Sinai. That was part of their culture. Right? So God's voice is very loud. And so he, as the thing moves, he's trying to describe it. And then suddenly, the whole thing stops. And he doesn't hear the sound anymore. And he says, the wings, they lower their wings. Like, the whole thing comes to a stop. And then he hears a voice. Look at verse 25. A voice came from above the expanse over their heads. When they stopped, right, they lowered their wings. Ezekiel, he hears the voice. He doesn't tell us what it says until chapter 2. All he says is he hears this voice, and the voice thunders like the chariot moving. Verse 26. So he keeps looking up. You hear a voice. I'm gonna, somebody's on top of this expanse. And so his vision, he's moving his way up. And then he hears a voice, but he, he doesn't see anything yet. And then he looks up. Something like a throne with the appearance of lapis lazuli was above the expanse over their heads. So this whole chariot, heavenly chariot thing is holding up what? a throne, a chair. And again, it's covered in some sort of a precious stone that everybody fights about exactly what kind of precious stone it was, but it doesn't really matter. You get the idea. It's this beautiful throne. Um, but again, if this was the whole vision, who cares? Right? Because the point of a throne is not the throne, it's the king. The point of a chariot is not the chariot, it's the guy, right? That's what we're going for here. So the point isn't the creatures even, right? They're just the guys who, okay, I think, I, I don't know this for sure. I don't know how far back this goes. I didn't research this historically. But you know when every uh, Charlton Heston movie that takes place in the Bible times, every one of those things, or like Cleopatra, you remember that movie with uh, Liz Taylor? Every one of those movies has a thing where um, they ride in, like the rich people, they ride in one of those things that the four guys hold on a pole. You know what I mean? Every one of those movies has it. I have no idea if those were even real. I didn't look this up at all. Uh, I'm 
Hollywood could have totally made that up. But the point is, nobody looks at that thing going down the street and goes, well, those guys are probably pretty strong. Right? Everybody goes, gee, I wonder who's inside that thing. That's the point here, right? Is this is kind of what's happening. These guys are holding up the, 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 the great expanse and the chariot, and then keep going. Uh, let's see, I'll click it. The last verse here, the last part. Uh, oh, wait, no. I want to stop. Wait, did I read? Sorry, I lost my place. Oh, anyway, on the throne, this is where I stopped. On the throne, high above, was somebody who looked like a human. This is important. This is who, so now he sees somebody on the throne. And in verse 27, from what seemed to be his waist up, I saw a gleam of amber with what looked like fire enclosing all around. From what, it, what seemed to be his waist down, I also saw what looked like fire. There was a brilliant light all around him. So this is, now we're getting somewhere. Right now we see the actual guy that's sitting on the throne. And something very weird. He looked like what? A human. He looked like a human. That's what Ezekiel sees. When he sees the fullness of the glory of the Lord, it's a human. For the Old Testament Israelites, this would not have made a lot of sense. God's a person? What? Looking back through the eyes of Scripture, you know, we know about Christ, and this is a prefigured, you know, Christ sitting on the throne, and he's surrounded by fire and light. Now, okay, we've give, I've given you this picture of what this looks like. So then what I did was I went on the Internet. Have you guys heard of the Internet? They have everything on there. And somewhere on the Internet, I, I had to go to Bing Images to find this, okay? That's how desperate I was. No, uh... People have been trying to draw this for a very long time. I found some hilarious ones. I'm not going to show you all of them. But this one, I'll sh you can just Google Ezekiel 1 images. It's pretty hilarious. This one looks like the cover of a Creed album from 1998. This is my favorite one. Okay, so you can kind of see. Okay, so they kind of get like the animation is cheesy. I mean, it's old, right? It's probably from the 90s, I bet. Eight, like, I mean, two, early 2000s. But you see, there's a wheel and a wheel. There's the four guys with their wings. This one doesn't have the wings touching. I don't know why it even says they're touching the wings. Uh, but this whole sea of glass, the, the great expanse, and the throne room on top, uh, the throne on top with the rainbow and everything that we'll see in the next verse. Uh, and the guy who's like below, below the waist, he's on fire, and above the waist, he's on fire. That's what the last verse just said. Very weird. Now, I actually, some of these are really great. The best one of these that I've seen, actually, though, is the Bible Project video. It's, it's simple, right? They're not trying to, I, I just like this one. Wait, so I cut this out of the Bible Project poster. Right there in the corner. You see that on that side? That's how they drew it. There's these things, and they have a wheel below them, and they're holding up the chariot, and on top of the chariot uh, is the... The, the king sitting on his throne, right? So this, this is what I want you to picture in your mind. Ezekiel sitting by the Kibar Canal complaining to God, where are you? What do you? Why am I here? Why did I train for 25 years or more, you know, to become a priest? Now all of a sudden the sky opens up in this storm and lightning and thunder, terrifying, and then out of the storm comes this weird thing and he looks, is that creatures? And he sees the wheels and he moves his way up and he sees at the top the guy sitting on the throne. And then the last part, he explains what it is. The appearance of the brilliant light all around was like that of a rainbow in a cloud on a rainy day, which the rainbow was the symbol of, um, of God's promise to Noah. It was a promise of grace. 
And the rainbow shows up in Revelation 4, surrounding the throne room. Right? So he sees this rainbow like in a cloud on a rainy day. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. The good part about this, he's like, look, this whole chapter, I'm going to try to describe this to you, even though I have no idea what I'm looking at. I'm going to do my best to describe it. But at the end of it, the good news is, he says, basically, I don't think I did a very good job describing what I saw. I tried my best. It was weird. But good news, you don't have to guess what it is. I'm just going to tell you what it was. I'm going to tell you what I saw. This was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord's glory. In this vision, God showed up to Ezekiel. And what happens every time God shows up in Scripture? What do people do? Yep. When I saw it, I fell face down and I heard a voice speaking. And the next week we'll read what the voice says. Right? This happens with Job. He kind of falls apart. Um, in Isaiah 6, when he sees the throne room vision, it says he comes apart from the inside out. Like he's literally torn apart from the inside out as he falls over. That's how terrified he is. Do you remember when Jesus tells Peter, hey, throw your nets on the other side, dude. There's some fish over there. And he does, and it's this miraculous catch that almost sinks the boat. And Peter, he comes over to Jesus. He falls on the ground. He says, depart from me, for I'm sinful. Right? He realizes who Jesus is in that moment, and he has the same reaction. John walked around with Jesus for a couple of years, right? And then he spent 60 more years after that talking to Jesus every day, filled with the Holy Spirit, planting churches, doing the Lord's work. At the end of his life, he has a vision where he sees the throne room of God, and he sees the Lord, and he does the exact same thing. He sees his friend Jesus in all of his glory, and he falls face down. Right? This, is, this is the response to the glory of the Lord. And then we hear, and then he says, So then I heard a voice speaking. Now the voice is not shouting directions to the, the four creatures or anything like that. He's talking directly to Ezekiel. And like I said, we'll read. What does he say? You got to come back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Anybody else remember that show? Okay, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll read what he says next week. Okay, so I want to talk about this for a second. If you go back to the book of Genesis, one of the um, sweetest verses in the whole Bible and also one of the most gut-wrenching verses in the entire Bible is right after the fall, before the Lord has confronted Adam and Eve about the fall. It says this, And the Lord was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, or something along those lines. Right? The idea is, in the garden, before we sinned, before we fell, we had this relationship with the Lord that was perfect. We could sit and we could talk. It, it was like the sense, we had this sense as a, as a race, you know, as a species, whatever. Wait, we had a sense that, like, this is how it's supposed to be. I was built for this relationship. And then we sinned. And in our sin, we told our creator, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And so he kicked us out of the garden. And when he kicked us out of the garden, what did he do next? Does anybody know? He says, you guys get out. Adam and Eve take one step out of the garden. What's the very next thing God does? Yeah, he puts two cherubim on the outside of the garden to say, this, these cherubim, they guard the presence of God. In chapter 10, we're going to learn more about these four creatures that we just read about. And we're going to find out that Ezekiel calls them in chapter 10. He calls them cherubim. And that's no coincidence. These are the four creatures who guard the presence of God. 
We learn about them a little in Isaiah 6. You know, anyway, so since we left, God said, you can't come back into my presence. These are the creatures that guard my presence. And what's happened since the fall is we have been trying to get back. We've been trying all sorts of things to get back. Um, one of my favorite quotes, um, uh, which I had always heard, but I never knew who said it, so I looked it up for this. It's a guy named Bruce Marshall. Uh, somebody said, GK, if you look it up, everybody says G.K. Chesterton said this quote, but he never said it. Uh, it was, he actually stole it from this guy, Bruce Marshall. It goes this. It goes like this. The man who rings the uh, doorbell at a brothel unconsciously does so because he's seeking God. Right? If you ask somebody, why does a guy go to a brothel? Why does a guy visit a prostitute? The answer would be because he's a dirty pervert, right? That's most of our answers. But what Bruce Marshall says, no, no, no. He's doing it because he's seeking some kind of a closeness. He's, he's got a broken desires within him, and he's looking for God. But it's not just brothels. We do this with, you know, and sex and stuff. We do this with all kinds of things. We do this with money. We try to use money to get back into this relationship. We try to use power. We try to use relationships. We try to use other religions. We have this built-in longing to be in this relationship with our creator. And since we got kicked out of the garden and God placed those cherubim there to say, can't get back here anymore, we have been trying to get back. And we have this, this, in this sense of something is missing, and it really bums us out. Theologians have called this this sense of longing for God and this sense of, like, I know I should feel God more than I do in my relationship with him. Theologians have called this the dark night of the soul. Um, there was a guy named, um, a 16th century Spanish monk named uh, St. John of the Cross. He came up with this phrase, the dark night of the soul. And it's a, it's a phrase that theologians came up with to describe specifically how even Christians struggle with feeling the presence of God in their lives. And we go through life and we have these periods where we feel, man, I feel really close to God. I'm learning so much at church and in my relationships and I'm spreading the gospel. And then we have other times it just feels like walking through a desert. And we're, we're longing for Eden. And we go, boy, I wish I could get back to Eden. There's a band, um, Jars of Clay. Uh, we sing a couple of their songs here. Um, they have a song that um, you should go look up this week and listen to as you think about this. The song's called Silence. Look at these lyrics. Um, Did you leave me unbreakable, leave me frozen? I've never felt, this is like, I love this part. I've never felt so cold. I thought you were silent. I thought you left me for the wreckage and the waste on an empty beach of faith. Was it true? And then this is the chorus. I got a question. He says it a couple times. He goes, where are you? That's the chorus to the song. This is a song to God. Sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? I got a question, God. What the heck, man? Where are you? I don't feel you here. And then the next verse is scream. Deeper, I want to scream. I want you to hear me. I want you to find me. I want to believe, but all that I pray is wrong and all that I claim is gone. And then he goes back into the chorus. I got a question. Where are you? Right now, I didn't do that much justice. It's one of those songs where the guy sings it and he's like singing like to your soul. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a great song. You should find it. But this is a common experience within the Christian faith. This is, I believe, what Ezekiel was going through as he sat by the river on his 30th birthday. He says, God, where are you? And what's God's answer? I'm right here. 
Let me show you. And the way he showed him was absolutely terrifying. Right? Sitting by the river, Ezekiel must have been wondering, after he saw this, the next question is, how could God's presence be in Babylon? And we're going to get into that. Like God's answer is, I'm right here. I know you're in Babylon, but so am I. Ezekiel goes, wait, what? How are you in Babylon? I thought you lived in Jerusalem in the temple. And we're going to get into that, especially in chapters 10 and 11 with the temple vision. Um, but if we jump that same, the same idea to the New Testament, God's answer is the same thing to us. God, where are you? His answer is, I'm united to you. My Holy Spirit lives within you. His answer is, I'm always right here, even if you don't feel it. So we have to ask the question, then, how is that even possible? How do we go from exile, like from exile, from being kicked out of Eden to the presence of God? And that's where the story of Jesus explains this whole thing for us. You see, Jesus was separated from the Father on the cross. Jesus quoted Psalm 22 that we read earlier. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our dark night of the soul, where we feel like God is not with us, we feel like God is distant, is nothing compared to what Jesus went through on the cross. And because Jesus went through the ultimate dark night of the soul, because Jesus went through the ultimate, like the Trinity was broken, like separated in a way that had never happened in all of history, right? In all of God's existence, that hadn't happened. The Trinity was like snapped apart and God poured out his wrath on Jesus. And because of that dark night of the soul, Jesus could come through it, defeat death, and then look us in the eye and go, I promise you now I'm never going to leave you. And the way that you can know is because you can look back at the cross. And when you feel that dark night of the soul, what I need you to do is I need you to look at the cross and remember what I did for you. And remember that I would never do that and then leave you alone. And so in this broken, in this fallen world, we are never going to do this perfectly. We're never going to perfectly feel our union with Christ. Union with Christ is the thing that's always true about us. He is always united to us. But again, we don't always feel it because our sin clouds our feelings. Our sin messes up our feelings. And so um, we, as followers of Jesus, we don't place our ultimate hope in how am I feeling today. We place our ultimate hope in what did Jesus say is true about me? And what did he say? This scary, transcendent God of storms and fire and lightning who sits on the throne on top of the glassy sea, right, on top of these chariot wheels with these cherubim carrying him around, that God, he is here right now. But again, sometimes my sin keeps me from fully experiencing that in its fullness. So what do we do? Like I said, we don't trust our feelings. We look at scriptures and we look forward with hope. We look forward to the day when my feelings won't be so fickle. We look forward to the day when we will never experience this dark night of the soul again. So what I want to do is, you know, until that day, though, we, we take comfort in his promises. So I want to end with a verse that's the best verse in the whole Bible to turn to when you're feeling like this. Right? It's this one from Romans 8. You guys remember the song? <laughs> All right, does anybody else know the song from Sunday school? I am persuaded that neither. No, just me. It's the catchiest song of all time. I'll sing it later when I'm not being recorded. All right, here we go. Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels like the cherubims we just read about, nor rulers, 
nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation. So this is a way to say there is nothing in the entire creation. He tries to cover everything. Nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us, that's us believers, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter where you are, no matter what you're going through, the God from Ezekiel 1 shows up just like he did with Ezekiel. He says, hey guys, I'm right here. And the way you can know that it's true is you look at Romans 8, and it says there's nothing in all of creation that can separate the two of us.